This is the story of stumbling upon and exposing and confronting a strong idol and dealing with the inevitable missionary consequences of poking idols. You see, mission is dangerous. It will cost you something. Mission will cost you something. Not because it takes you to dangerous people or dangerous places, but because the mission of God is intrinsically a dangerous act because it is a direct assault on the oppressive bondage of idols, bondage that the devil has worked very hard to secure. And so we face, missionaries face danger, not just from the people whom, whom, who might have a stronger grab on the, on the idols that are shackling them. They might not like that we poke some of the idols that they love. But we also invite, actually, spiritual attack the moment that we start coming after the stronghold of idols. We invite it when we do that. You see, the mission of God is dangerous because the mission of God is spiritual confrontation with idols. Three years ago, we, um, we, we, were, we, we weren't living here at the time. We were living in, in Illinois, and we took our, our son for the first time to Ikea in St. Louis. Um, that bastion of evil, Ikea. Uh, <laughs> we got to the, I don't like, my beef with Ikea is that they try to control how and where you walk. I, now and ever since, and the first few times I went to Ikea, I just submitted to that leadership over my life. Fine, you know, even though the one thing, I just want one little green potted plant and it's at the very end and I know where it is. Let me go get it. And I didn't actually know my first two or three times going to Ikea that you could, you were a free person and you could, <laughs> I thought you gave up human freedom when you got into the parking lot. You have to get the Swedish meatballs. There's no options here. But now I refuse to go in the front. I refuse it. And they have all, at the checkout line, they've got all the gates, like you can't come in this way, but there's always one, there's always one or two. You find your way through and then you stop at the as is section first, not last as is section first, not last. And the, but this, this first time we took Landon, my wife and I had been a couple times before, but we took Landon and we, and we went in the front door as usual. We went up the escalator to like the third floor and then they work you down or whatever. And we're going up the escalator and right at the top of the escalator, there's this big bin full of stuffed animal pandas. They still have them. Have you seen these things? These stuffed animal pandas. They're like $5 per panda, which is like, I think, crazy cheap. Uh, uh, for, for like, a, like a big stuffed animal thing. And he grabs one, and Landon was about, eight, I think, 18 months to two years, somewhere like that. And he grabbed one, and he was in this phase where he was just rubbing his face over anything that was, um, you know, microfiber or suede or, or like soft, anything like that. So if we went to a clothing store and there was like a rack of like sweaters, he would just get all up in that and just rub his face all over it, and, and then we'd leave. So he sees these pandas and he grabs one and he just starts rubbing his face all over this panda. This little, and then he's like, he's, like, he's like, I want it, I want it, I want it. And I decided we'll go ahead and get it, not because we wanted to get it for him, but because we can't put that panda back after this thing, like doing this thing. Like we were in public, it wouldn't have looked right. So, so we got him this panda. And, and uh, you know, we had tried to, to, he had a blanket that he really liked, he still likes it, but he... He had never really connected with like any kind of toy or stuffed animal as like his favorite before. And anything you try to get him to connect to, they won't. And then the thing that you're like not even trying at all, it just becomes their favorite thing in the world. 
so he just falls in love with this panda. Um, and the panda had to go to bed with him at night. And, and at first, it was like, I want panda to go to sleep with me at night in the crib. And then after a little while, then it was like, I need panda to nap with me too. I need panda to come in and nap with me. And then eventually it was, I need panda to go everywhere with us. Like we can't leave the house without panda. Um, and just would lose his mind if we accidentally left the house without Panda. We've got to turn back. We've got to turn back. I can't believe we lost Panda. And, and then eventually it, it started to turn to like, I think it was maybe when, when, Jane, when my wife had Jackson, our second, and Landon started observing how Jamie was caring for Jackson, and Landon felt like, I have neglected Panda <laughs> in, our, in our friendship. So he started like every morning getting up, he would have to get, he would have to change Panda's diaper and put a fresh diaper on Panda and then put clothes on Panda. Like actual, we would find, we find clothes that fit Panda and we put clothes on Panda now. And then he started trying to, this is a little awkward, but he started like actually breastfeeding Panda. And we, <laughs> we kind of tried to sit down and have like an anatomy conversation, which I think didn't really work. We kind of went over his head, he's not ready, he's not there yet. We started like, like having to consider how to feed and nourish Panda. And then, and, uh, and then we, he started making Panda his own bed. You know, he felt like Panda was old enough to have his own bed. Now he puts Panda to bed. He reads to Panda and he sings to Panda and he prays prayers with Panda. And, then, and, he, and he gives Panda a bath, a, an imaginary bath, because water's not good for Panda, but it's an imaginary bath. <laughs> And here recently, Panda has started to make demands of the family. Like, if we, if we decide in the evening, like, I need to go to Home Depot, can we all go to Home Depot together? Panda will be, Landon will be like, I'd love to, but Panda really wants to go to the Riverwalk tonight. <laughs> so, don't ask me, ask Panda. We're like, leave, we're like leaving Walmart on Dale Mabry or something, and he'll, he'll see McDonald's, and he'll be like, Panda would really like a strawberry shake today. Panda would really, it's his favorite, it's Panda's favorite. I would really like a strawberry shake. Our li- Landon's life particularly and our lives in general started to have to mold around the leadership of Panda, the demands of Panda. I think this is um, strangely, strangely, uh, uh, a lesson in idolatry that a lifeless, powerless thing can move ever so slowly from the peripheral of your life to the center. And once it gets to the center, it tries to control your life and determine its very meaning. Anything besides God that controls and defines reality, determines meaning for you and the world around you, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. And certainly in the Bible, we... There, there's lots of the time, not all the time, but lots of the time, idols are depicted as these items, the, a, a lot of times made of, made of precious materials like gold. And, and, and you, might, you might think of uh, 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 the people of God at Mount Sinai and making this calf out of gold as an example of that, which Stephen actually references in, in chapter 7 in his rebuttal in this court, uh, uh, talking about idolatry and the, pe- the people of God's tendency toward idolatry, but it's not just these crafted things that sit on mantles. They are, it is anything besides God that takes the, the operational position of leadership in your life and from that place defines for you reality and meaning and value and gives you a grid toward which to make decisions. And this is what Stephen stumbles upon in this confrontation. 
And you can see idolatry in the, in the content of his response, which unfortunately you don't have because it was very long. Uh, but I'll summarize it for you. He, he, he offers this history of the people of Israel. And he starts all the way with, back with Abraham and God's promise to Abraham to deliver him uh, not, not just a people, a nation, but also a land, a promised land. And he sealed that, that promised Abraham with a, with a covenant and, and particularly the sign of circumcision. And Stephen talks about how that sign was passed on and that covenant was passed on from him to Isaac to Jacob and then to Jacob's 12 uh, 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 sons, which would now be the tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes, Joseph, got... got uh, betrayed by his brothers and wound up by, by a, a series of circumstances to Egypt. And, and eventually the, all the tribes of Israel, all the brothers, the whole family wound up in Egypt. But eventually the, the Egyptians' favor for the people of God wore out. There was a new Pharaoh who knew nothing of God, knew nothing of these people, and did not care about them. Which created over time this slavery and oppression situation from which they needed an exodus. They needed a savior. And Stephen even talks about Moses and the calling of Moses and the, the, the circumstances around the life of Moses and the, how Moses delivered the people of God from Exodus. And then they had the presence of God among them in something like the tabernacle. Stephen actually mentions, again, the tabernacle, the presence of God among them as they walked in the wilderness. Their inheriting of the land, and he even goes so far to talk about Solomon and the establishment of the temple. So in one rebuttal to the court of the Sanhedrin, to like these powerful Israelite people, he's giving a history to people, which is their own history. He's saying, let me, let me just remind you of, of our history. And in that history, he, talked, he touched on the, four, on the four primary markers of what it means to be a Jew in that time. The land, the national ethnic identity tied to circumcision, the law and he ties that to the tabernacle and the temple. The law, the temple, the national ethnic identity, and the land. And he addresses every single one. And toward the end, he starts to describe how God has been, God has been doing something new with, you, with us. Over and over again, doing something new. Doing something new. And what I'm saying is, is God is now doing something radically new in Christ Jesus who has come as both Savior and is now sits at the right hand as Lord. And yet, if you reject what God is doing and try to hang on to things that He has previously done that are now powerless and void, you are, you are now susceptible and immediately entrenched in idolatry. If you reject the new thing that God is doing but hang on to the old thing, which is now powerless and void, that is idolatry which is why he immediately starts to reference stories like Sinai and the gold calf. And he starts to talk about how, how this is what you've always done. You've always actually killed your prophets. And here we are again, killing your prophets. It's a very strong speech. And each one of those, those previous markers of identity now are powerless and are idols if used to reject, if used to reject the new chapter in the story of God. But you can also see idolatry not just in how Stephen addresses them, but you can see it in how they're responding to the confrontation, which is what we talked about earlier. 
You see, you might be running into an idol in your own missionary life, in your own leadership, in your own neighborhood, in your own workplace, among those to whom you serve and love. You might be running into an idol if people close their fists tighter around their views or dig their heels into the ground of their loyalty when confronted with disconfirming evidence and facts. They could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit that was given to him. And they closed their fist around it. When faced with persuasive wisdom, they had two choices. To change their mind, to have humility, we could be wrong here. We'd, lo- we'd love to look for the truth. But they have no interest in looking for the truth. And in the midst of disconfirm- strong, persuasive, disconfirming evidence and facts they decide to discredit and even kill the messenger because power is at stake and identity and value is at stake because they're receiving identity and value from these powerless things that are now under threat. See, you might be running into an idol if people feel the need to assault your character and your credibility rather than dialogue about your content. You might be running into an idol if people feel the need to turn others against you who really have nothing to do with it. Just go running around building a case and a choir against you. You might be running into an idol if people react in rage, direct verbal and or physical violence against you. Guys, this is why mission is dangerous. Whether you're working on the streets or with addicts or, 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 with, or with suburban neighbors who never come out of their house, mission is dangerous. Not strictly because it takes you to dangerous places, seemingly dangerous places, but because the confrontation of idols is always dangerous anywhere you go. Mission is risky because people don't like their idols poked, and the devil doesn't like it either. I had a call maybe a few months ago from Nishu, uh, who many of you know Nishu's the, Nishu's the leader of a microchurch called Honor One. And Nishu has this, this heart and passion and zeal to walk with and reach uh, the Asian community in Tampa and international students. And he's kind of gathered around him a community of people who have that same heart and they're trying to do that together, walk, run and do that together, uh, 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 serve and reach that population of people. I got a call from him a few months ago, and he had this controversy happening in, in the leadership around him, and there were being like accusations made about him, and then at the same time as all that happening internally, he just had like all these personal things happening and, and, and relationships that felt like there he just felt like he was in a storm of uh, 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 spiritual confrontation, and everything was falling apart. He just felt like everything is falling apart. I don't know if I don't know if Honor One's even going to exist a week from now, you know, and, and you know, and, and I'm not sure how long I can last. And he was having a really hard time, and he started reaching out to uh, uh, you know others in the community to to just support him, walk with him. And I was maybe the third or fourth person he called, and and you know he he kind of talked it out with me, and I was just asking questions like, what happened with this? What happened with this? And how are you feeling? And how are you processing that? And uh, and toward the you. Know, you know, I was just trying to listen and, and uh, be a listening ear. And eventually toward the end of the conversation, I just said, listen, I know this is like crazy hard. And if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't want to hear what I'm about to tell you. 
So just know that. I'm self-aware of that. I know what you're going through is really hard. But man, what did you expect? Like, you're picking a fight with the devil every day. You're, you're contesting evil every day. You're inviting people to let go of their idols and surrender to the leadership and lordship of Jesus, to trust him for their whole future now and into eternity. This is gonna, it's going to be, one, it's going to be really hard, and two, things, the devil's going to come after you. And his response to me was, man, every person I call, they say that. I'm trying to find someone who won't say that. <laughs> and he was, he, he, was, he, was kind of, he was kind of encouraged by the end of it. Because the reality is, I think, I was just sharing with him what every other missionary in this community who walks with Nishu was sharing with him. In some weird way, when everything starts to fall apart and you feel like you're under immense confrontation, accusation and betrayal and sin and mess internally, but then also spiritual attack and you're, trying to, you're dealing with all that personal life falling apart, all that at the same time, you know what we see? We see something that's actually worth the devil's attention. Nishu, don't you see that? Don't you see like, like, if, like if, if nothing's like ever going wrong, maybe you aren't actually contesting any idols in the world. Are you actually engaged with evil? Are you engaged in the mess? And when that stuff happens, it's hard, it's brutal. People have to, people have to walk with you. You have to walk through it. It's, 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 we're, we're not trying to say it's like amazing and you just try to chase it down and find it or something like that. But when it happens, it just means that, that we're threatening the devil. We're, 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 we're on the cusp of breakthrough, on the cusp of it. Don't you give up. Don't you, don't you give up. Don't you let him win. Keep pushing. I just thought it was amazing that, that, that three, four, five people he would talk to were so unified in that because, because we'd tasted it too at some point or another, maybe even right now. I'm going through it too. And yet somehow in the midst of it, I sure hope my face shines. I sure hope I'm so, full, I, 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 I'm so full of resurrection power and victory and hope in the intimacy of God that, that my face shines to the people that know it. If you haven't received anger or ridicule, accusation or betrayal, I would just wonder, can you name a single idol in your community that you're committing your life to contest? Peace is good. I want to be clear about this. Peace is so good. I love peace. I am a lover of peace. <laughs> and calm and, and, and waves and sunshine and rainbows. And I'm a, I love it, guys. I'm all in. I'm a, I love that. But peace and calm at the cost of complicit agreement with idolatry is not worth the trade. Peace that demands complicit agreement with the idolatry among the people that you serve and even in your own midst is not a good peace to agree to. It's not a treaty you can sign. But the peace of God that's actually hard fought. The calm of God that is hard fought is the one worth fighting for. It's bad for you 
to agree with that idolatry because your missionary zeal is ineffective without a commitment to exposing and contesting the idols that dominate the people that you love and you serve and you feel called to. But that peace treaty with idolatry is actually doubly tragic for those you long to reach because they sit in chains to their idolatry while you hold the key and you talk a lot about freedom. Do not complicitly agree with the idolatry in the room because people are shackled to it, shackled to it. Idolatry is prison, it's shackles, it's bondage. And to contest that idolatry is actually to invite liberation, to break chains, to break shackles, and to know that the power of the gospel and dwelling in the Holy Spirit has the ability and power to break those chains. There is this, I think it's a jolting irony in the story, that those who are under the most intense bondage in the room is the synagogue of the freedom. And the freest man in the room is the one who's under arrest. See, idolatry is bondage and people need set free. Will you join with God in the dangerous work, the costly work of liberating people? Last week I was, I was walking out of the hub and I ran into Rosalinda. And uh, you, you, many of you might not know who Rosalinda is, but she, uh, you know, she's lived in the Central House for a long time and she's been around the community, uh, an influential leader, I think, in the community for a long time. And she, in August, she, she left, she made the, the, the risky choice of leaving a very stable uh, 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 job of hers to take on an opportunity that, that came her way to work with hundreds if not thousands of Puerto Rican families in, in the Tampa Bay area who are still trying to put their lives together since the hurricanes two, a year ago. Media news stopped like, like three weeks later, four weeks later, but every time they pull back a little bit more FEMA assistance, hundreds of families go homeless because there's a five-year wait list for Section 8 housing around here, and those people are living in motels, hotels, and they're only doing that by FEMA vouchers. And every time those get peeled back a little bit, those families got nowhere to go. And so Rosalinda's jumped in with Nancy and a team into that, into that world, into that fray, uh, trying to figure that out, advocating for those people, trying to help them put their lives back together, integrate into this, into this place if they can't return home. And they're always running into these just like, like crazy situations. Uh, uh, um, they are just contesting with the devil <laughs> all the time. And I was walking out of the hub, and I saw, I was either walking in or out, I don't even remember, but I saw Rosalinda, and I, and I was in a hurry. I was on my way to something, and I was like, hey, how's it going? And you know when you do that, you say, how's it going, but you don't actually mean I want to have a conversation. You're just trying, you know, I'm on my way. I'm trying to get somewhere. And I was like, hey, how's it going? And, and Rosalinda was like, it's, it's been great. It's been so good. Uh, we just had a woman today that was casting curses on us for two weeks, and she decided to stop. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Let's just roll that back. What, would, what would just happened? What did you just say? And so, someone who, whom their ministry was serving, in the midst of them supporting people, praying for people, speaking truth over people, someone didn't like the truth they were speaking that, it, that it, it, it came against something that they had their fists tightly closed around. And that person decided to like, hire someone, recruit someone, to go into 
the, our hub where their office is and get regularly served by that ministry for a few weeks, all while casting curses on them the whole time. It's like a spiritual hit person. Like they found like a, they, like a dark spiritual hit person who didn't actually need services to just go in there and hang out with them and ask questions all while casting curses for their destruction, the, the foiling of their plans and their ministry, for betrayal, for accusation. And after doing that for a couple weeks, the, the woman eventually came in and was like, look, uh, I just have to be honest with you. Someone sent me to cast curses on you. And, and every time I've been coming in, and you guys have seen me, I've been casting cursing, curses on you, but you guys just keep, you guys just keep helping me <laughs> and praying for me and speaking the truth over me and encouraging me. I don't want to curse you anymore. Look what you did, you know. <laughs> I, you, you are not as I was told. You are not as was described to me. See, mission is dangerous because we offer a contrasting way, an alternative way to the narrative of the world, to the truth led about by idols, and an alternative master to receive or reject the presentation of a new way, a new kingdom way, a new master, a better master. What are the idols that reign among those to whom you are sent? What does God want to set people free from among you? I think Jesus wants to battle, continue to battle the American idols of success and comfort and safety. Idols that promise so much and deliver so little. That promise the, the alternative to such things, but only deliver more fear, more anxiety, and more despair. The opposite of what they promise. But calling that out, calling out that idol through the witness of the gospel is a risk. It always is. But will you put yourself on the line with Jesus? He wants to contest the idol of body image, an idol that promises affection and love and status but only delivers self, self-hatred and self-harm if submitted to, surrendered to. I think, every, I think every gym in the world needs a witnessing community in there that just contests body image. Contest that idol. It helps people walk and how they've been created and who they are and how, how God sees them. But calling that out through the gospel is a risk. It always is a risk. Will you put yourself on the line with Jesus? God wants to liberate, liberate people from the bondage of political tribalism and blind loyalty. An idol that promises righteousness and weirdly promises unity. It's a very strange kind of unity. It's not actual unity. <laughs> But if submitted to, all it delivers is actually hypocrisy and division. I think we have to be honest, especially in an election season like this, where it's all people see, it's all people hear, everybody wants to talk about it. I think it's important for us as the people of God to realize the idols that are built within political tribalism and the the polar expanse that we're in now. And to know that what it means to step into that space as a prophet and as a witness to an alternative way 
is to acknowledge that, that, that Jesus is not Republican or Democrat, and so actually neither should I be, and I must measure every candidate by the ethics and values of the kingdom of God, and I do not give my blind loyalty to any color or party. And so every time, you're not quite sure how I'm going to vote. Nobody knows quite sure how I'm going to vote because Jesus is not bound or held captive by any party. And so I must not be either. And what it means to be prophetic in a time like this actually is to go into every conversation ex with the assumption of nuance and the assumption of complexity and humility and longing for dialogue, which are all void. They're, they're gone. I don't know where those went. They're gone. But I think it is our prophetic witness, actually, to engage a time like this, a people like this, in every space we're in, calling out that idolatry, contesting that idolatry in every space. Will you put yourself on the line with him? God wants to release people from the idol of social approval, an idol that promises belonging and fulfillment, but it only actually delivers loneliness and more emptiness if submitted to. And calling that out through the gospel will be a risk. But will you put yourself on the line with Jesus? And he wants to set people free from the idols behind and in people's addictions. Idols of escapism and thrill, satisfaction in life, but idols that only deliver more pain from which there is no escape but God in the midst of it. And calling that out through the gospel is a risk. Every time it is a risk. But will you put yourself on the line? See, the mission of God is dangerous because the mission of God is spiritual confrontation with idols. And will you join with him in the work of liberation by contesting the idols of our time? The worship team would come up. I do want to end with this. This, just like, just like Tammy was mentioning and, and, and Charlene in the front, this, this, this shocking image of hope and love and resurrection and the kingdom in the midst of such evil at the end, in the midst of a moment of death and injustice and destruction. You see, at the, at the height of missionary risk and cost, at the height of missionary pain and persecution and scorn is often the height of our intimacy with Jesus and the height of our hope and our vision for the kingdom of God. You see, if we run away from the pain of mission, we simultaneously run away from the peace of the nearness of Jesus. We run away from the serenity of his intimacy. And yet if we bravely run into the pain of mission, embrace the pain of mission, we simultaneously find heaven and earth overlaid in a new way. We find a baptized hope in the kingdom and we find the sweet security of depending on God in a powerful, potent, intimate way. And I think people like that, I know people like that, I've seen people like that, some of you are like that, and I think their faces shine. I think the people who know them, I don't know what to do with the contradiction of the space of life they're in, the experiences they have, the people they walk with, the amount of pain or betrayal or loss or accusation or persecution that they endure, and yet, somehow, they're full. Full of hope, life, joy. They know something of God that I want. 
They know something of the Lord that I feel like I need. And don't just, don't just hear me. Don't just trust me in theory. I want you to hear some of the testimonies of history of people who gave everything, who, who endured lives of cost while contesting with the idols of their time and some of their own words toward the end of their lives. People like Ignatius in the early church who on the, on the eve of his martyrdom for his faith, he said, let fire in the cross, let the very torment of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Let the fire and the cross come upon me, even let the devil come upon me, as long as I can attain and continue to strive for Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. He is enough for me. And it feels like in the midst of this, I just get more of him. So bring it on. Or maybe Polycarp in that same era. In a prayer to God, he says, I bless you, you uh, 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 that you have decided that I deserve and am worthy of this day and hour, that I might receive a portion of the suffering cup of Christ. Thank you, God, that you have... I mean, can you imagine in the, in the midst of some horrendous accusation, betrayal, persecution because you've contested, you've stood toe-to-toe with evil. In that space, deciding, thank you, God, that you counted me worthy to carry this with you this day and hour, to share in this with you. Thank you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, when, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. Come and die. It is the definition of our call to come and die. Or the words from Paul after everything he went through, that that long list in 2 Corinthians of whippings and shipwreck and, 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 and stoned and all this kind of stuff for him to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm alive, I get all of Jesus. When I die, it's just you're adding to my account. To die is a gain for me. I'm not afraid. And even in this text, Stephen, with the, the shining face of an angel, to say, Lord, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. And don't, don't count it against these people. I forgive them. Don't count it against them. I'm ready. You see, we lean into the legacy of Stephen with so many others through history who have decided to embrace the cost and the risk and the danger of mission because that same truth set us free and it's liberating others from the idols of our time. And this morning as we come to the table, we come as those who remember the chains that were broken for us, the idols that we were submitted to, the idols that had a hold of us, and yet God by His Spirit broke us free, liberated us, maybe by another by a leader in your life, by a caretaker. And this morning we come remembering that we were set free. And we come away committed to contesting the idols 
no matter the cost, among those to whom we are sent. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, he poured it out and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, when you're ready, the elements are given to you.